Here we go. Rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition as we do every week. The sit down with all sorts of folks who have touched the NBA. Today's episode brought to you by Michelob Ultra. Are you happy because you win? Or do you win because you're happy? At only 2.6 carbs and 95 calories, it's only worth it if you enjoy it. Stay tuned. Coming up later in the episode, the Ultra Player of the Week. Noah Kozlov out here in the East Coast, out West, Adam Stenko. Also out West, our guest today, Josiah Johnson. You know him at KingJosiah54 on Twitter. The legend, the prime mover of NBA Twitter, co-host out of pocket. With Zach Schwartz for Buckets, part of the Wave TV platform. He created the Legends of Chamberlain Heights. Part of basketball royalty, Father Marcus Johnson, five-time All-Star National Champion, Player of the Year at UCLA. Looking forward to going in all sorts of directions. But Joe, I want to start with a story I heard that LeBron took your locker when you were in high school. Uh, no, LeBron. I offered when he was in high school. I offered LeBron my locker. Uh, he, I was, uh, I think, a freshman or sophomore at UCLA. He was in town to play uh, in a high school tournament. So they, they were at Pawtucket. We were out of town at the time, but they ended up using our, our locker room. LeBron was gracious enough to use my locker. And there's actually a photo in Sports Illustrated of him stretching in front of my locker. You can see my chair with, with the Johnson 54 on it. So always been a big fan of LeBron James, but that I remember even in college kind of seeing that and just knowing he had really good taste in lockers. So, you know, always, always been rolling with LBJ. <laughs> did, did you personally offer your locker to LeBron? I mean, I allowed him to use it. Once I found out that it happened, I didn't try to press him or anything like that. <laughs> I, he obviously has the ultimate amount of respect for LeBron. Even then he was a rock star, obviously even before social media. So, they see him come to town and see that picture. It always kind of makes my heart flutter whenever that picture comes up. So, Josiah, speaking of one legend, we'll we'll go to another one now. I, I talked to my buddy Earl Watson about you and said, is there anything I need to ask Josiah about? He said, you got to ask him about T.J. Cummings dating <laughs> one of the members of Destiny's Child. So, <laughs> oh, oh, how did that happen? How did that happen? Uh, T.J. Cummings is one of the big legends of all time. He was actually my roommate for a uh, freshman, sophomore year of college. We ended up living together too later on in college. But just great. I mean, T.J., obviously, very good-looking dude. You know, 6'9", just, you know, just, you know, six-pack, you know, running five-minute miles. Just, you know, had the braids going. With, with His hang was always a little question, but when he had the braids going, uh, you know, just steady, you know, kind of, you know, shout-out to Kawhi and all the guys that still do it. But, TJ was just obviously a legend. He's really good looking. So he had the eye of a lot of women in Los Angeles. Everybody was trying to holler and uh, just having me end up dating, dating one of the members for um, Destiny Child briefly. We won't get into names and things like that. We'll protect the innocent and all that. But sure. yeah, he was just, you know, TJ was always just kind of, you know, he's that dude. Like he, he's done a lot of stuff kind of in the active space. Even after college, he was in a Miss Elliott video that uh, was, you know, on MTV all the time. So he was just, <laughs> he was just a legend, a legend in every sense of the word. You know, how much truth is there to the idea that when you go out with a guy like that, and we, we all have the friend or, or someone we know that, that's like that, how much when you guys were going out in that capacity, was it, oh, we have to go out with TJ because we know, like, the girls he turns down at least, that's who I'm going to be hanging out with. <laughs> I mean, you know, we all, we all were good-looking gentlemen and, you know, <laughs> definitely could do things in our own life. But TJ was just a dude, like, he was, fear, he was fearless, so – when we, we rolled up to a spot or wherever it may be, you know, we, we were young kids, but he, he had no problem talking to anybody. He knew the right things to say. He was just a, a debonair smooth dude. So definitely rolling with him, you like you knew you were going to get into the spot, which is always questionable, especially, you know, being that age and kind of just the Hollywood scene and everything going on at that time. But whenever you're rolling with TJ, you know he, he got you. He was never going to desert you. He was never that type of, you know, some people have those type of friends that, that they'll go to the club and they'll leave them standing outside. Like, he was never about that. Always, everybody gets in or we go to another spot. And that's just, that's the type of mentality you want from a friend, from a teammate, from a brother like that. Yeah, that is, that's a beautiful thing. On, on, a, on a serious note, you have a, a father who's so highly decorated with his career at UCLA and then a five-time All-Star and, and TJ Cummings' dad, also a, a legend, and Terry Cummings. Um, I'm always curious for uh, for guys, your position growing up with a famous father is so unique. When you're connected with a teammate that's in the same situation, how much did you guys talk about that? It's funny, actually, our dads were traded for each other. My dad was in Milwaukee, TJ's dad, I believe, was with the San Diego Clippers right before they moved hmm. to L.A., and they ended up, they were, they were traded for each other. So I'd met TJ probably when I was like 12, 13 years old on the AAU circuit. He was a beast then, but always had a 
and it's a lot of respect for Terry Cummings. You know, I watched a ton of basketball, but just remember he was kind of like the Iron Man. Right? He played like 18, 19 years, but just standout player at DePaul. So I always had a tremendous amount of respect for him. And I remember before me and TJ got to UCLA, TJ was in slam. He had like a slam diary, which back in the day was like, if you had a slam diary, you were, you were that dude. Mm-hmm. So, so I remember reading even his slam diary coming in. I had a couple of dudes on the squad. Ray Young, I believe, had one. I want to say Capono had one as well. But just guys, when you come in, you feel like these dudes are larger than life. And you already know who they are. So me and TJ were always cool. We ended up bonding and connecting right away and, and still a good friend to this day. Were you a better high school basketball player or high school tennis player? Uh, I played tennis just uh, for basketball. I played, uh, I think, varsity at Crenshaw for like two years. And uh, I think we won like one or two games. I played uh, like like number four or five singles and then like number two or three doubles, whatever it was. But uh, really just for basketball to stay in shape during the off season. Had grown up playing. My, my dad and mom got me lessons when I was a kid. So was always interested in the game. Probably if I took it more serious, I could have probably been a dominant force, you know, like the Tiger Woods of tennis or something like that, the male Serena, <laughs> you know, Serena or something like that. But, you know, did, didn't, didn't pursue it as much as I should have. But, uh, yeah, no, yeah. Okay, I see you guys are out here doing some narwhal dirt digging. I, I really respect it. Yeah, I get <laughs> oh, for sure. Were you always the biggest guy on the court? Uh, honestly, as a, as a ninth and 10th grader at Crenshaw, I was so short. I was like 5'7 as a freshman. And I want to say probably like six foot, six foot one as a sophomore. Like sophomore to junior year, I ended up transferring to Montclair Prep, but I had like a five inch growth spurt. So I went from like six one to like six six ish. But uh, yeah, I was kind of I was kind of a dweeb my freshman year. I probably should have stayed back a year and did that whole hold back thing. But uh, yeah, so it wasn't wasn't really the fully developed specimen that I am today at, at that age. I heard you say, uh, sort of in passing, that you were a ball boy on. Uh your brother's uh, national championship squad, 95. Um, what's your, what's your best story from, from that squad? Uh, really, you know, when, when I tell people even this day, Ed O'Bannon is one of my favorite players of all time. It really was just that year of being around Ed. That was 94, 95. I believe my brother was a freshman. He was hurt. I uh, ended up hurting his foot early in the year. So didn't, didn't play as much, but just seeing the way that Ed and that crew and just, you know, the magic that they brought back to Westwood, they ended up winning the national championship. Obviously, my dad had the, the infamous Yeah Baby radio call, which may or may not have been uh, like Myers for the uh, Austin Power Series. You know, there's still some discussion and debate because he was a big UCLA fan at that point. But just being around those guys, I remember I went to the uh, national championship was at the Kingdom of Seattle. So I flew out there just with my dad to go to the game and ended up spending the night in my brother's room after they won the championship. Obviously, we didn't sleep much. But I was probably like, trying to think, you know, almost 13 years old at that point. So literally, I remember there's probably like 10 to 12 people in the room. They were up all night. They were on like, a, you know, the day show. They literally were up, you know, till four or five, six in the morning. Everybody might have slept for an hour, then flying back with them on the charter flight and pulling up to, to L.A. And everybody kind of came to the airport and was cheering them on. It was, it was super incredible, just amazing, surreal moment to actually see, you know, a whole season go on with this squad. I think they went like 32-1 and one during the season. And then just them roll through the tournament and obviously win the national championship against Arkansas without, you know, I believe, you know, Ty Zenny who had the wrist injury, which, you know, Ty is my cousin as well. Just, you know, a little snapple fact for you guys. But just being around that that team, Ty Zedek, Ed O'Bannon, Toby Bailey, J.R. Henderson, David Boyle, just, you know, every dude on the squad. We were like a huge family. Steve Lavin was an assistant at that point. Jim Harris, Godfrey, mm-hmm. Lorenzo Romar. And I just remember even when we'd be wiping the floors during games, and all the coaches would be on the sideline cheering us on. You hear laugh like, good job, ball boys, good job. But, you know, just – but just like it was like everybody was in sync and locked in. They made us feel a part of the family, whether, you know, layup lines, whatever, having to shag balls for Ed and, you know, go out there and close out on him and try to play some pretend defense while he busted my ass and, you know, in, in, in layup lines and at halftime. But just uh, just that family, man, and how amazing it was for them to bring a championship back to Westwood. Did it really feel like being around rock stars? It was honestly like these dudes. I remember I went to elementary school on UCLA's campus at this school, UES. So seeing a dude like Charles O'Bannon, seeing a dude like Ed O'Bannon walking around campus when you're in elementary school, I would go play at the arcade on campus after school and see these dudes. Like they were always just larger than life, like superstars, celebrities. And then to actually obviously go to UCLA and become, you know, in the same kind of fraternity as those guys, like truly an amazing, amazing experience. There is such a a crazy collection, not just that, that core, but then when you get to UCLA of just the guys that were, were around the program. So your freshman year, your class, obviously 
telling listeners, not anything you don't know, but Matt Barnes, Dan Godzirich, uh, Capono, as you mentioned, Dijon Thompson, Cedric Bozeman, um, they're all there. Five NBA players that are there, but your freshman class, sorry, Dijon and, and Bozeman came in highly decorated along with you. And then sophomore year, the freshman class that comes in when you're a sophomore, Ryan Hollins, Mercedes Lewis, the football star, and then Quinn Hawking, your writing partner. I mean, what was those first couple of years at UCLA like with just such a unique collection of not only talented guys, but also just interesting personalities? Uh, we had a, a crew just full of absolute legends. Like, you know, throughout that time, you know, playing with guys you mentioned, Matt Capono. Capono, obviously one of the biggest legends of all time. Just hilarious dude, but just a dude, you know, just one of the greatest shooters I've ever seen. But just everybody was interesting, unique, funny, kind of in their own way, kind of clicks that broke off. Obviously, the older guys didn't really mess with the younger guys and vice versa. So we would all kind of, you know, not necessarily be at odds with each other. We're all family. We want to win. But, you know, you're competing for playing time and social status and everything else like that. So there was always kind of just, just things going on. But these dudes, everybody was just hilarious. Like, in order, and this is where I get a lot of the comedy and humor I have now, in order to be kind of in those locker room settings, you're with 15, 18 guys that are on a squad. You know, you're with each other day and night for months and months on end. You eventually start clowning each other, going at each other. So just to be around those dudes and, 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 and be in the presence of those dudes and seeing a guy like Matt Barnes, who's still a good friend to this day, but Matt, his senior year just exploding. He had one of the, you know, he had one of the greatest weekends I think I've ever seen from a Thursday, Saturday. We, we beat SC and uh, Kansas, I want to say, in a two-game stretch. Kansas was number one at the time. But Matt had like 34 against SC and 27 against Kansas, literally just like went nuts. So just, just thinking about those times, playing with Dan Gazurik, who's now Gazurik, and just how much of a, like a character Dan was, how hilarious, how much of a legend. But he was just like built like Adonis. Like he could, he could literally just, you know, do whatever he wanted on the court, had like a size 13 shoe, which a lot of people don't realize. So he was just so nimble and agile. But to see Dan out there and having to guard Dan in practice, and it was at that point kind of, you know, my first couple of weeks on campus, I'm just like, yeah, I'm probably not going to go pro. I got to kind of figure something else out. But all in all, just a great, great group of dudes. Dudes I'm still friends with to this day. We had John Crispin who came in from Penn State. Brian Morrison mm-hmm. was still a good buddy of mine who came in from North Carolina. So just had a whole kind of diverse crew of legends. You talk about the young guys with Jordan Farmar and Aflalo and Lorenzo Mata. Mata's probably the biggest legend of, of everyone, you know, when we, we talk about the scope of UCLA basketball. But just dudes that, you know, you're still friends with, still keep in touch. And obviously, when we, you know, we couldn't see each other in the last year just because of the pandemic. But when you show up at games or barbecues or anything like that, it's just, you know, all the love and the memories come back. We'll reveal the ultra player of the week later in the show. But I'll give you a tease. It's a player who plays with a ton of joy, creates a good deal of success for his team despite their win-loss record. He makes more threes per game than there are carbs in a Michelob Ultra. And trust me, you'll enjoy it, and it's worth it. The Michelob Ultra Player of the Week coming up later on Rejecting the Screen. Get more of the sports news you need in less time with our new Locked On Today podcast. Peter Bukowski hosts Locked On Today. It's a daily podcast breaking down the biggest stories with analysis from our local experts. Start your day with all the sports news you need in under 20 minutes. Subscribe to Locked On Today wherever you get your podcasts. Is the Josiah Johnson UCLA Bruins college basketball game-worn issue jersey that's on eBay for $249.99 plus 1520 expedited shipping. Is that from you? That I would never sell the jersey that cheap. I do have a bunch of memorabilia, <laughs> but I'm more of like a hoarder, so I just save all that stuff. Like, I've got a bunch of a bunch of pairs of uh, Kobe. We got my Kobe ones my freshman year. When Adidas kind of just came out with that new new Kobe shoe, so we were like the you know one of their, their franchise schools, so we got every colorway of the Kobe. So I, just all that type of stuff, jersey stuff like that. I still keep on. I don't, I don't ever try selling any of that too. 250 is way too low for a Johnson jersey, though. We need at least a rack. Whoever's selling it, I would think so. Re- report them. Report them. <laughs> it's got. It's got to be fraud. Before your your freshman year at UCLA, I heard you say that you you lost a, a ton of weight and you're playing against pros in those UCLA runs. What were those runs like? Uh, probably some of the most intense, fierce, competitive. You're talking about all types of guys that that came through there. 
between the Paul Pierce, the Baron Davis of the world, all the local LA guys that will come through, even Master P every once in a while for the more obscure names. But just, just you know, intense games. I remember KG came through one summer, you know, kind of at the height of his career, and I had to guard him in a bunch of games. And I'm just like, what am I doing with my life? I got to guard this dude. But ended up actually playing okay. You know, lo and behold, you realize, like, the pros are going, like, 50%, 60%. They just want to get a sweat. So as a college kid, you got to go, like, 115% to be able to kind of to equalize it out. But just, you know, playing those games in the men's gym, the Wooden Center, just summer on campus, right, at UCLA, all the dudes that would come through and just kind of how much of a movement it was. Like, every summer you knew the faces that were going to come through, guys hang out outside of the court. You know, they show up at, at the college hot, hot spots, you know what I mean, and kind of just get a taste of that life. Like, it was mm-hmm. it was just a great, glorious time to be around all those dudes. Did you get a chance to run with Magic? Yes, I did. Magic is notorious. I love Magic Johnson. Uh, you know, I love Magic. But Magic is notorious for calling fouls that are felonious. I, I've said yes. that before. Yes. Like one, you know, it, it, but it's like, so it's Magic. So what are you supposed to say? Like, literally, the dude beat HIV. The dude is literally one of the most dominant human beings of all time, one of the most lovable, personable dudes. But now you have to guard him or play against him and you might get a rebound or a steal, and because it's game point, he's going to call foul every time until his team wins. Now, ultimately, you have to respect that because only Magic can really get that off, but when you're on the other side of that, you definitely want to fight the dude as a hooper. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard Earl, Earl Watson told me this story. He said that that he stole it from Magic, went down the other end, and like was about to make a layup, and, and Magic was like, no, 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 no. And Earl goes, what are you talking about? He goes, I'm Magic Johnson. Like, you're not stealing from me without fouling. And he goes, and by the way, like, if it really was close, I would have just elbowed you in the in the teeth and knocked all your teeth out, but you have too pretty of a smile. <laughs> so Magic would do this thing. He didn't call foul. He just said ball. So whenever he said ball, you just knew. And like, the whole gym, it was kind of uh, like uh, the, sh- the show The Wire, the poker games. They yes, organized yeah. the poker game. Everybody had to lose. Like, you know, it was just like, it was like that moment you knew. Like, I think I've seen Magic lose maybe twice. In, in a UCLA suburb run. And it was, I think, Chris, my brother Chris, and one of his squads at one point, like, they would just dominate the main court, you know, I mean, to the point where you couldn't cheat because they were just busting your ass. So there was no way, there was no way even with rigging the game or whatever, whatever, like, you were still going to lose. So, but you knew that if you beat them 7-6, you really beat them, like, 15-6. to six. Did you ever run with LeBron there? Did not. Miss, Miss LeBron era was, was there when he came by and, and played there uh, a couple of years ago. So got to check that out and just, just see the King in action in, in, a, in a, you know, a pickup game. It was truly, you know, phenomenal. LeBron's obviously, when you see him, you know, I used to joke back in the day with the SDTVs, like when you're watching games, it was hard to tell the difference between LeBron and Ben Wallace until like a basketball move was made. So you just see this big ass six nine six eight dude, but that could just handle the rock run point. It's just everything that, you know, you dreamed of as a hooper growing up to have these dudes that be this on this versatile. Did those guys used to go to Maloney's with you? Uh, no, they, they, that was more of a Madison era. Maloney's was kind of Madison's closed down. So it, like, there was just a, like Maloney's just became the spot. Like no, nobody, you know, everybody really rocked with Madison and that was the spot internationally known do some SC would come. It was like, you know, Bob Saget of the world, Woody Harrelson, everybody will fall through there, but Madison fell on hard times, ended up closing down. So just the overflow to Maloney's. We also had the spot in El Dorado that was, uh, summertime was, was the jam. My, one of my roommates was actually a promoter there, but that was a spot where you could find an Earl or other guys that come through and they kind of just get like a little taste of college, but it was, it was a little bit more elegant than that. So it was kind of for the upper echelon, older college <laughs> students. All right. So Woody Harrelson. So you're 10 when white men can't jump came out. And if anyone doesn't know your father was Raymond, did you watch the movie at 10? Yeah, I, I was on set. I think I was too young to be able to be in it. My older brother, Chris was in it. There's still like I was watching it still crack up. He's like, you know, one of one of the, one of the games. You can see a shot of him. He's wearing like a I want to say like a Jet sweatshirt and an Eagles hat. And you, you know, or excuse me, a warrior. He's wearing a war. I think he's wearing like my dad's warrior sweatshirt and like either an Eagles or a Jets hat. But you know, he's kind of he's kind of chunky at that point. So it's just funny seeing him. And my my cousin was in it too. But remember being on set for all of it. I actually went to a lot of the training sessions. I believe they were doing at the the Beverly Hills YMCA like before they started filming. So saw guys like Woody and, and, and Wesley Snipes and those guys out there trying to run three-man weaves and trying to play with the guys and all that type of stuff. Huh. Obviously playing with pros like my dad and Nigel Miguel and people like that. But remember seeing that thing in the theater the first time it came out, his scene came on, the whole theater just erupted and went crazy. <laughs> and it was like, all right, this, this might be something legendary. Would have never 
a million years believe that that's how people know him now as opposed to obviously everything he did on the basketball court. How do you even go to school the next day? Like, that's the thing for me. Like, how do you go to school after your dad is in and you're on the set of White Man Can't Jump and it blows up? Well, here's the thing. I went to the school called UES, which is a private school. So among the, uh, you know, esteemed alumni that went there, like Steven Spielberg's kids, I was in the same grade as Jeffrey Katzenberg's kids. Like, mm. like so So just to say that the stuff he was doing really wasn't stunting on any of them. Like, you know yeah. I mean? like there, was, there was some real, like, you know, Steven Spielberg's kids were there. You know, it's like nobody's really, like, you know, who's, who's really going to flex on them? But there was definitely – it was definitely – because I grew up in that industry. I went to the, the same school as Norm Nixon's kids. And, mm. uh, you know, we, we used to get, you know, picked up from school on the carpool and we get taken to the different world set where uh, Debbie Allen obviously was – was directing and producing and doing everything she did for that show. So spent mm. so much time just immersed in the scene and in Hollywood and just being around all these things as like a eight, nine, 10, 11 year old kid would just have to like Thursday night get picked up and no, I wasn't going to get home till 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Cause we were going to be on set of a different world all night. My mom was doing a lot of like just background work and stuff like that. Just, just for the, just for fun, but spent a lot of the time there. So kind of knew once I finished college and basketball and everything like that, my life was probably going to be doing something in the entertainment space. Still a lot of hoops to bet on NHL as well. You can even bet on award shows, reality TV, all sorts of props on everything you can imagine, all on betonline.ag. They've got you covered for all the news, scores, odds, best way and place to throw your bets down, and it's free to sign up. Just use the promo code LOCKEDON, L-O-C-K-E-D, on LOCKEDON, on the website, on the app. If you sign up today, use that promo code locked on and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. There are so many new cars, and Adam is going to have to choose from one of them <laughs> at some point. <laughs> so you can switch over to one of those sites after he gets off of rockauto.com as he's trying to fix the lemon that Mike Yam sold him. More people should really be hitting up Mike Gam on Twitter when they hear this and asking him why he sold you such a lemon. I love Yam so much, too. That's the thing. Such a good guy. But what, uh, thank, thankfully, we have this sponsorship with Rock Auto. But for anyone, you've got reliably low prices. That's the thing. It's incredible, Noah. I don't know how I would be able to drive to the gas station if not for rockauto.com. Prices at rockauto.com, always reliably low. The same for the professionals, the do-it-yourselfers, and like us, the try-it-yourselfers. So why would you spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Got that catalog that's so unique and easy to navigate. You go, yep, that's all the, all the filters. Click them off. Then you can see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brand specifications, prices you prefer. Go to rockauto.com right now. You can see all the parts available for your car or truck, right? Locked on, L-O-C-K-E-D, space on, locked on in their How Did You Hear About Us box so that they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Rockauto.com. When you need fantasy basketball advice, it's important that you have a reliable source. And more people trust Josh Lloyd previous guest here on Rejecting the Screen, host of Locked On Fantasy Basketball than any other fantasy basketball podcast. Subscribe to the number one fantasy basketball podcast, Locked On Fantasy Basketball, wherever you get your podcasts. I have another UCLA question, though. So you go from from Steve Lavin, who I, I've been around Lava a bunch in, in my life. He's a great guy, but you're with Steve Lavin for your first two years, and then Ben Hallen takes over your junior year. They could not be more different in terms of the, them as coaches. What was your first, oh, no, this isn't Lav. We're now under Coach Howland moment. Well, the thing is, me and, being, me and Coach Howland are great friends now, but when he, when he came in, he, he didn't like me. He let it be known. It wasn't anything malicious. It's like, look, you know, you're not going to play for me. This is, is what it is. And I honestly I look back in life, and I respect it just for him being as open and transparent, but let me know you're not going to stay, whatever it may be. So me and Howland didn't necessarily uh, see eye to eye a lot, but have a tremendous amount of respect for him. It's a funny thing, though. People like people look at Lab and they think Lab is kind of like this pushover or whatever. But our practices with Lab versus our practices with Howland were like night and day. Like Lab would keep you three and a half, four hours. Like we, we would, you know, we would have a set time. We were supposed to get out of there. We'd be out of there an hour later, which as a hooper is not a big deal. But, you know, when it gets towards the you know, middle end of the season, it's like, shit, bro, we can't, you know, like we can't, be, we can't keep doing these two, three hour practices. 
where Howland came in and he, he operated a lot more kind of in a, in a pro style, like just practice were going to be regimented the same amount of time, kind of similar, I would say, to maybe in like a John Wooden type of system where yep. regimented, set amount of time, we're doing this drill for eight minutes, we're doing this drill for seven minutes, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to bam, then we're going to get you out of here. So definitely respect the way he came in and just how he broke the game down too from a defensive side. But I love both those dudes. So Lav, you know, Lav obviously had his style, Coach Allen had his style, but two dudes that I can get down and really rock with just because they helped me become the man who I am today. Did you did you consider transfer when he has that conversation with you? Yeah, it was definitely a point. I was thinking about going to, I believe, like UC Davis or something. They were on the verge of becoming a D1 school at that point, and one of our former assistants that got the head coaching job there. So we were talking about maybe Davis, maybe like a, you know, a couple other smaller spots. But at the end of the day, it was just like, look, you know, like I love UCLA. I, I don't want to leave the campus. I love these guys here. So just stuck it out, toughed it out, and, uh, you know, got through it. Obviously, we made a tournament my senior year. Had a, had a great season with that young crew of guys that came in. So, you know, I don't have any regrets with, with the decisions I made. All right, we're going to get into, with the time we have left, more on the on the entertainment side. Now, you're, you're not afraid to say anything. I mean, it really is out of pocket. Has any trash talk on the court ever gone too far? Uh, back, nah, I'm trying to think. No, nah, nah, I mean, look, everybody, you know, you, everybody's kind of fight, did whatever they've had to do in life. Like, those things boil over sometimes, but nothing I've done on a social standpoint is ever, like, look, I'm 6'8", 300 pounds. Nobody really wants that problem. Like, they can mm-hmm. pretend like they do. They can they can talk on social like they do, but there's always pull-ups, meet-ups, whatever. Always ample time and situation for people to come address the things that they need to address. But I think there's a level <laughs> of respect, too. Because I'm just, I'm just being real. Like, you know, because I'm the same way. If somebody says something crazy to me, it's like, look, I'll pull up. It's no problem. Like, you know, I mean, we don't really, you know, I'm not the Twitter fingers guy. Like, people need to understand that. And I think sometimes being on social gives people the impression that they can speak kind of however they want to you, where I just like to let them know that's not really the case. But, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for athletes and for former players. So even if I do joke a little bit about guys, whatever, it's always more from that kind of locker room jabbing where I know that they're comfortable and they can take it. And if I dish it out, I got to be able to take it as well. So I'm always willing and game for somebody to clown me or tell me I look like Jordan Peele or, you know, a, a fat version of Dwayne The Rock, whatever it may be. <laughs> Like, as long as it's funny and it makes me laugh. Somebody one time said I look like a thumb, and honestly, I lost it. It's probably one of the, the you know, I literally, like, if somebody makes me laugh, and I, it's a certain amount of respect, because ultimately guys know, like, nobody's really, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to fight somebody or go to jail or do something dumb because of some, something happened on Twitter. Like, oh, you said, you, you tweeted at me with something mean, like, I'm going to fight you? Like, that just doesn't make any sense for somebody in the position that I'm in. What, what is the difference and what are the similarities between the locker room and the writer's room? Uh, actually, I, there there are a lot more similarities than people want to believe or even know. But the thing about when you're in a, a locker room, you have a, a group of guys right there. There's a hierarchy. That everybody knows who the star players are, who the guys are getting shined, and everybody kind of more or less learns throughout the course of the season what their role and their position is, right? You may have dreams of being the star player. You may quickly learn, like, nah, you're probably not going to do that or, or vice versa, whatever it may be. Like, writer's room, same thing, hierarchy. you got the showrunners, EPs, co-EPs, producers all the way down the line. But it's an ecosystem, right? Everybody needs to work together. You can't really have egos. You have to, if you want to be successful in, in, in both, you can't have egos and you have to come together for the common goal of, of getting a championship, winning a ring, as I like to say. So whether you're in the writer's room or in the locker room, the goal should be winning, you know, performing at your highest level and delivering the best that you can because you know you know when you don't do your best and it, it, it's obvious and everybody can see it. So you might as well go out there and try and get a chip. Well, and then you and then you combine it too the the writers' room and the and the locker room because of um, what you and, and Quinn Hawking do together and you teammates obviously UCLA Legends of Chamberlain Heights comes out six years in the making as I've read you're working on this thing it's your dream you you have all these aspirations all of a sudden Comedy Central picks it up and it finally is getting a chance to air first night it airs where do you watch it how do you celebrate. Uh, first night it aired, I was doing, like, I was live tweeting for it. So I believe I needed to, I was at work for the first airing on the East Coast, which was like a South Park aired at 10 and aired at 1030. So it would have been 7, 730 Pacific at the Bento Box office. I think everybody kind of gone home for the night except for a few people. But I'm, I'm just in, a, in an edit, edit bay there watching it on TweetDeck, you know, live tweeting, trying to drum up as much publicity as possible for it then end up going home after that to my house and watch it with, with my wife and my, one of my former teammates Ryan Walcott who I played with at UCLA was uh was, was at my house at the time so we just sit there and watch it and you know crack up and enjoy it and 
it's, it's truly a surreal thing to see every different level and layer and process of it to having the final finished product that's airing with the Comedy Central logo on the, you know, on TV that you, it's not, you check the, uh, the guide on the TV and it shows up there and your name's mm-hmm. on the screen and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it was truly a, a tremendous experience. Obviously the launching port to a, a career, you know, that I've had now. And I, I don't look back with any, any regrets or anything. I'm just super, super happy that we got those two seasons. Super thankful to Comedy Central for giving us the opportunity and looking back, like, look, you know, who else, how many people can really say they were, they were on a, you know, a cartoon that got two seasons at Comedy Central where they were voicing, you know, three to four to five to seven characters in episodes and doing just the most obscene, absurd stuff possible. <laughs> and, it, and it holds up, man. It is like still oh, like going man. online on YouTube and just watching clips. It is. <laughs> what were you looking forward to addressing through that show that you didn't get to? I think with that show, if you look at even a lot of the way I talk now, I definitely always have a message behind it. It's a lot more satire. Mm-hmm. Like that show was kind of billed as the Black South Park, which I felt like was always just way too much pressure to put on us. But to be able to look at things that impact the Black community and do it in a way where it, it, there's, there's, there's satire and humor attached to it, but there's real messages. And even the way I work social media now, you know, a lot of the stuff I say is probably super controversial. It may or may or may not cost me jobs. I really don't care. That's kind of the beautiful position that I get to be in as me. Like, I don't give a fuck at this point, and that's why I've been able to be the most successful that I can be. So I really just approach everything with just the mentality of, like, I'm going to do what I think is good. I'm going to – I'm gonna the message that I believe to be true. If other people have a problem with it, great. If other people love it, like, that's awesome. Like, I, I appreciate all the support. But at the end of the day, this, this is me. This is who I am. And if anybody has a problem with it, I frankly just do not give a fuck anymore. And they can, you know, go cry about it, I guess. I don't know. The stuff on police brutality and all that, the, the rawness of it, even coming across in a cartoon was just is awesome. So um, credit to you guys and the job that that you did on that show. I'm, I'm so curious that, you know, it's like you talk to guys that, that reach the NBA and they always sort of say, well, once I became an NBA player, like these doors open, this is how my life changed for you you were already known in certain circles, obviously not just for athletic achievements, but the things you had done with Jersey Chasers and all that. But now you get a show on Comedy Central. How does your life change? It changed. The funny thing is, so we started developing that show in 2009. I believe it aired in 2016. So over the course of that seven-year window before it actually makes air, you're telling your friends and your buddies about it. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, okay, great. Like, (laughs) sure. Oh, you got it. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah. We're, sure. We'll see when it happens. Then, then you keep, you know, you keep all the different little checkpoints that you need to pass in order to make a, a series, right? You do, you, you know, they buy the show, then you got to give them a script and they got to approve the script and they ask you to, you know, they pay you to make a, a 12 minute version of the episode. They they saw our 12 minute version. Like, all right, go ahead and make a full episode. You do the full episode. Now they're testing, I think in like Las Vegas with like 20 people who are now watching the show and deciding whether or not it becomes a series based on their reactions or whatever it may be to getting the call that, Hey, it got ordered to series and getting a show on there, man. So it's like, it's a, it's a wild phenomenal time, but really just a testament to like, it, it's a, it's a grind and a struggle. So for me, it changed my life, just giving me an opportunity to really show the world what I was capable of doing from a comedy standpoint, from a humor standpoint. And I feel like a lot of times as a, as a former athlete or Hooper, whatever it may be, people, people don't really give you the respect. They kind of think you're just a big dumb jock or, you got in because of, of basketball and you're not really educated, but I've always prided myself on being intelligent, you know, whether it was high school, being in the National Honor Society or, or at UCLA, I think graduated like a 3.6 in my, my history major, just things like that. Like always took it to another level. My mom was a teacher, my dad's whole side of the family are teachers. Like we really pride ourselves on that. So to be able to have that show be a stepping stone in launching my career and being able to do everything I did on the entertainment side, but also everything I'm doing now on the social side and, kind of seeing how those two worlds, like the entertainment side, you didn't really used to respect the social side at all. Everybody used to just think, oh, we can just make a Twitter account and we'll get a million followers. Now they're starting to realize how much harder it is to get recognized and stand out amongst the crowd on social and how much important that is for all these streaming platforms and everything like that. So to be on the precipice and at the forefront of kind of both those lanes and their emerging point, like I'm just excited, man. I think, you know, I really have high hopes and high belief in myself. So I'm really excited to go out there and get to where I need to get to. Where do you want to get to? Uh, mogul, like really just have to, honestly, like I look at the, the social and digital space and what a lot of people, even who used to look at my content and not really realize it was how strategic and how much energy and effort I put into to the right copy and captions and everything that goes on, everything that a lot of social media teams you see out there have 10 to 12 people on their team to do all these different things. All right. This side is 
kind of create the concept. This guy's this side's going to produce it. This side has to make the caption. How many emojis do we put in? Who do we tag? Blah blah blah. Like I'm doing all those things as a one man band, literally as a 38 year old washed former hooper with kids and a wife and a family. Like you know, what I mean, running circles around whole social teams that I kind of like laugh and giggle to myself sometimes, just thinking like you know how much energy they put in versus what I do. And now I'm even seeing kind of the shift in how everybody is starting to apply a lot of the same strategies that I do and kind of talking the same way and doing, you know I mean? It's like, you know, it's hard to miss when you look at that space, but I'm really just, just super excited for obviously the future and really dominating both sides of the game, writing, still doing a lot of stuff in the writing space, but obviously still doing a lot of stuff in the social space and really making sure that people who look like me and, and are as talented as me also get those opportunities. We want to ask you about your upcoming project, but but on the, the Twitter side of things, TJ Adeshola, who is a, is a good friend of mine, we had him on the podcast um, actually a few years ago before we were even part of this podcasting network. And I remember we were discussing NBA Twitter. For people that don't know, TJ runs uh, sports partnerships for Twitter and asked TJ flat out, like, you know, who are the NBA Twitter people who matter? And yours was one of the first names he mentioned at the time. He's like, you got to talk about King Josiah. That, that was the thing. He was like, he's the king and, and brought it up right away. I'm, I'm curious. No one can copy who you are as a personality and the way that you think about the world, the way you see the world and your experience. But in terms of the way that you prepare and put together, like what you're doing, it's not like on the spot. I mean, some of it, I guess, comes comes top of the head. But like there there also has to be a process that goes in. So what is some of that behind the scenes process that you can turn around your amazing tweets as quickly as you do first off shout out to, to tj and the whole crew over there at twitter always looked out always show love for for everybody in the community and really have gone out of the way to really inspire this community to thrive and give us the resources and take us out to nba finals games and things like that but what i like to explain to people is like look you can look at the tweet pattern or whatever but i've been putting in work doing this stuff for the better part of 25 30 years you know, whether you know, being in comedy, roast battles in locker rooms or as much content as I've consumed, but <laughs> I don't watch content the same way. I kind of like to say I have a LeBron-like mind when it comes to content, the same way he can remember plays and he can remember, you know, stuff that happened 10, 12 seasons ago on a random play in the third quarter. Like, I can do the same thing, which is pop culture, memes, clips, to the point where when I'm watching things and they happen in real time, I see it as a meme. I already see kind of the vision of what it reminds me of. Or if I don't see it, I got to just think in my head really quick, oh, this reminds me of X, Y, or Z. Or this mm-hmm. might remind me of one movie that I compare up with another movie and find that kind of seamless balance in the dialogue to just really kind of you know blow people's minds off the water. But at the end of the day, like there's there's so much more into it, but everything is really geared on. I'm 38 years old, so it's everything that I saw in the, the, the late 80s, early 90s, early 2000s, all the way through all the different trends and topical and cultural things that, that I've kind of just seen growing up. So I have my own unique library that's geared specifically to me. And I have the ability now to really articulate and find those things that I want to use and put out. And I can also take new clips and apply them to different trending and top culture or pop cultural things. So it's really just a lot of work, effort, and energy. I didn't really get into social, you know, to do all this type of stuff. I really started getting into social because I had the show Legends of Chamberlain Heights and I started managing the social account for the show. And I was like, look, the show's my baby. I don't want the show to go away. So I'm going to do whatever I can on the social side because I knew you had to have a big imprint on the social side to really stand out in, amongst the crowd on television and especially on the digital streaming side. So learned how to do it through legends. The whole time I was doing it, my wife was like, yo, you need to just do it on your own account. You're building up this legends account. If the show gets canceled, you, you know, you don't get to take it with you. So I'm like, yeah, you're right. Started listening to her, which I should have done a long time ago. Started <laughs> focusing on my own stuff. Cause I'm just like, yeah, there's so much stuff I couldn't do on that account that I could do on my own account. So many things I can say, and I don't have to worry about, Ooh, you know, that's why I always kind of just maintain being a mercenary with the different companies I work with. So I can't really ever have somebody telling me how to do my art. Like that's just never, never really, really going to gel one. That's not going to get the best result for anybody involved. Are brands coming to you now asking you to either run their account or at least consult for them? I mean, look, you can, you can see a lot of the way that brands move and shake now. And I got a lot of friends that work across social. Like I said, we're a tight knit community. So I know my name and my tweets and the, my, my style are showing up in a lot of slacks. Believe me, I got receipts, like, you know, if it ever gets to that point where anybody doubts me, because I've built up such a good currency with all the people that I work with and there's such a mutual respect that we know when they're like, yeah, man, they, you know, somebody, you know, one of the youngsters over here, you know, try to grab your thing and, and take it. And, you know, they'll apologize and go out of the way to kind of school the youngsters like, yo, this is not how you move on my social mm-hmm. side. You got to have respect for creatives. So there's so much built in trust and respect that I don't really kind of deal with that type of stuff anymore. Speaking of the, like the accounts that, that really blew up, 
what did you make of House of Highlights? Uh, how, I mean, look, Omar Omar Raja is, is a good friend of mine. Probably, I have such a tremendous amount of respect for that younger generation that really goes out there and grinds and goes and gets it. And to just see Omar's trajectory building House of Highlights up to the preeminent sports platform, it really showed you because a lot of this stuff in this game used to be a lot of older people who are now, you know, we would call them in the dinosaur range. I'm getting to that level, but trying to tell young kids what to think is cool and how to move and how to operate. Where we've seen with Twitter and we've seen with TikTok and we've seen with the really the growth of all these different social platforms, the young kids are the ones who control currency and really tell us what's cool, right? It's not really the other way around. So now you have all these things and a guy like Omar who builds up House of Highlights from a couple hundred thousand follower count all the way up to 15, 16 million, obviously goes over to a ESPN and Sports Center and kind of takes over that thing. But, you know, we, we, what I like to impress upon people that work in social now, we are turning into rock stars. We're turning into the Neos of the Matrix and those type of people. The way that sports journalists, kind of in the, early, the late 90s and early 2000s, the PTIs and around the horns and things like that, they used to be kind of the stars in the face of the sport. Not everybody on the social side is doing that because they know how, much, how invested we are in our team. And you have to be able to bring, you know, obviously commentary, jokes, takes, a little bit of everything and be able to hold your own in this, this thriving community where literally anybody at any moment can try to come at you, say something crazy about you, do whatever. So it's a whole different world and landscape right now. You really got to be built for it. So, Josiah, uh, before we let you go, I do want to ask you about this Colin Kaepernick project on Netflix with Ava DuVernay. Um, she, obviously, she's incredible, and everything she touches is gold, basically. I mean, she's she's Midas. Um, and then now, all of a sudden, you're working with her and Michael Starbury. I mean, just to think what this project could ultimately turn into – um, I know there's not a ton of information out there about it, but for what you can say, like what do people have to look forward to about what's to come there? I think when you talk about a, a, a man like Colin Kaepernick and just everything he's dealt with, the trials, the tribulations, obviously getting blackballed from his sport and you know, winning a collusion case against the NFL, just all the negativity that you still see to this day, even though the things he was talking about in 2016 have shown themselves in 2020, 2021, capital insurrections, you know, Nazis getting, you know, celebrated and told they're fine people, all this, you know, police brutality and things we've seen. So I think people, you know, people have, there's a lot of people out there who, who, who look at Colin and, and, and don't look at him in a favorable light. And I think this show is really going to help show people understand that a lot of the stuff that he's doing now, he, it's always been inside of him. He just needed a way to, to release it and let it out. So being able to work with him, obviously being able to work with Ava and Starberry, me and Starberry work together on Legend of the Chamberlain Heights. He's, in my mind, the, the best writer in the game. You know, I'm like, literally, I'll put him up against anybody. And just seeing, just seeing his process and being around him and being able to soak up game from him is ultimately from a, from a writing side. He's, he's like my LeBron. Like, I can't, I can't say enough good stuff about Starberry and about Ava. Ava, you know, the thing about Ava is Ava gives so many, you know, voices that are marginalized and people that maybe will never get an opportunity to do something, the opportunity, as long as you can deliver. That's why she's as successful as she is. She, she, she runs a tight ship. She's, you know, she's a leader. She's, she's like a, a magic. If I compare it to somebody, you know, those, those, those Lakers Showtime teams, like she's mm -hmm. coming in. Every, here's everybody's job. This is what you need to do. And you need to do it correctly because we're on a time schedule. We need to be able to hit our, our benchmarks and, and deliver the product that we need to deliver because everybody's name's on this. So just being able like every time she walks in the room, like my heart starts fluttering. I get nervous. Like I don't want to say the wrong thing or, or slip up, but just knowing also that she went to UCLA and she's a Bruin and how amazing and incredible it is to be, you know, being be working with somebody who, who went to the same college as you and is, is doing so much for the world and so much good on the entertainment side. So the show is going to be legendary. I don't think, you know, nobody wants to toot their horn or whatever, but nobody goes into this project, especially with somebody like Colin. Like, it's on all of us to make, uh, make an amazing project, and I know that, that that's going to happen. So super excited for it. You know, there should be some more updates coming on, come, coming on about it soon in the near future, but – for me to be able to work with Ava and Starberry and that whole crew, we had a, a tremendous writing staff on that on that show, and just all the people that were involved with it is like, um, you know, I mean, I, I pinch myself still thinking about just that opportunity, but also hoping that we can do a good job in telling Colin's story, really showing the world who this man is. I'm so excited about it. I, I have to wonder just how much comedy will be in this because that's uh, that's part of your mind, right? I mean, it has to go there. I mean, there'll be there'll be some levity in it. Obviously, it's more of a drama, dramedy in that sure. range. But there's sure. there's definitely serious, sensitive subject matter. But we we in the black community use satire and humor as a coping mechanism. So there there's definitely gonna be some levity in it. Starberry, you know, one of the 
you know, Starberry and Ava worked together on When They See Us, got nominated for an Emmy for that. But Starberry was also working with me on Legend of Chamberlain Heights. So just to see the duality of his mind and understanding comma and drama, but really just understanding story. And that's, you know, people, people use that word a lot and don't really know what it means, but the ability to tell an amazing story to make you emotionally invested in characters and whether that's from a comedy side or, or a dramatic side, you know, at the end of the day, that's the things you're going to remember. How, how did you relate to these characters? How did you feel? How did this, the show make you feel? So being with that team, it's like, I feel like it's the dream team. And I was like Christian Leitner on the squad, like just, you know, just have, <laughs> having to be out there on the court, like, Hey, let me, who needs a screen set for him? Who needs, who needs some bad carries? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Stuff like that. But, but now, but really with the goal, that's why I really appreciate and love and respect Ava and Starberry of elevating, right? That's the only way we can succeed in this industry, especially as, as black people and black creatives is by helping each other out and elevating each other to those next levels. Our last question always, Joe, is since it's the Rejecting the Screen podcast, it's like the conversation that the guys used to have in the back of the bus on the plane in the 80s and 90s. Who would you want to take the last shot? You can't say Michael Jordan. So who would you want to, from all the guys that you've ever been on the floor with actually playing, who would you want to reject the screen, go ISO, get a bucket? Um, I mean, I, first and foremost would be my older brother, Chris, just because he, he – I mean, I've seen him do it way too many times in life, just had ice in his veins, you know what I mean? Like he – high school, they won the uh, CIF championship against uh, Modern Day with a finger roll at the buzzer, like just – you know, in college, I remember he had a game winner against Washington State. He hits a three, waves off Baron Davis, I believe, hits a three. So he'd be my main guy just in terms of doing that. I'm trying to think, guys, Capono would definitely be a dude that's up there just because Capono was a dude who didn't care. He just liked giving people buckets. Like, no matter how, whatever it took, he was going to give you a bucket. Uh, Earl Watson would be another guy, too, just knowing Earl Earl in his, uh, you know, just un- unwillingness to ever want to lose anything would, would find and figure out a way to hit a bucket. So, just a couple of guys I could think of. All right. We appreciate you continue being the legend and all the folks that are getting to learn under you are incredibly fortunate. So keep doing what you're doing. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. As much as I enjoy following Josiah on Twitter at King Josiah 54, I enjoy talking to him even more. First time I ever spoke to him, really enjoyed it. Oh, he was, he's so great. I mean, you knew about the legendary stuff. His tweets are incredible. If you're not following him, then, I mean, just obviously this conversation would make you want to follow him. But if you're not following him already, like, I, I realized that I even wasn't following him. It hadn't even occurred to me because I've seen so much of his stuff because people were always retweeting it. Like, mm-hmm. it's almost like every tweet he puts out there, everybody that I follow is already retweeting. But just such a fascinating guy. And um, I love his approach and the way he just attacks things. And just that idea, I'm always rooting for people that, that approach the world as though like, look, this is, this is where I'm coming from. This is my perspective and I'm not going to hold it back. Like, this is how I speak normally. This is what I find funny normally. And you're either on board or not. And guess what? Most people are because he's hysterical and he's a brilliant guy. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, being able to have that completely give no fucks attitude. This is who I am. That's what most strive for strive for to, yep. be able, to be able to get to to be at that point where well if you don't like it all right live with it the Michelob ultra player of the week now enjoyment isn't the end game it's the whole game and when you're playing like Sadiq bay joy creates success and he was putting up a whole lot more buckets than you get from carbs and calories in Michelob Ultra. 2.6 carbs, that's about as many threes he's making a game at 95 calories. And it's only worth it if you enjoy it. And if you are a fantasy owner who owns Sadiq Bay, because now he's getting picked up everywhere, then you did enjoy it. Sadiq Bay dropped 30 against the Celtics. He had 30 mm. and 12 on 7 of 7 from 3 early in the week. Mm. He averaged about 18, 5 and a half on 70% shooting from three. Here are his three-point percentages last week. And this comes out Thursday, but we're recording this on Monday. That's why we're talking about Sadiq Bay from the week before. Three for three from three against the Nets. Two for five for three against the, the Pacers. Seven for seven from deep against the Celtics. And four for eight from three against the Pelicans. If only, if only there would have been someone hmm. on a podcast who months before the draft was telling 
folks who listen to the podcast that Sadiq Bay's Sadiq Bay is the guy that you should be watching for. If yeah, only. you know, if there was only someone who would have done that, maybe on this program, maybe you and I talking about it, that would have popped up. It would have been amazing. I will tell you, Noah. Um, was on Sadiq Bay for quite some time. And someone asked me today, why is it do you think that he didn't end up going higher if, if you know you feel this way? It's groupthink. Certain guys get classified as they're going to be top five guys. And once that happens, once top tier guys are sort of established, teams then don't even talk about it. The media doesn't talk about them in that way. So a team may think a guy's top five, but they're certainly not going to let you know. It's like the Donovan Mitchell private workout. Like, oh, wow, we'd love that guy we're not gonna let anybody know how much we love him we hope we can get to him when we when we have our pick in the draft uh and i will say my stamp of approval on that i i heard all i needed to hear when i heard that steve kerr's favorite player in the draft was sadiq bay interestingly enough of course he's not drafting bob myers is doing the drafting for golden state but if steve kerr is agreeing with me then i knew i'd be okay are you happy because you win or do you win because you're happy that's the hmm. lifelong question in sports. Does chemistry breed success? Success breed chemistry? Well, pick up a Michelob Ultra and you'll just be happy all the way around because you'll be winning at the same time. We're on Instagram sometimes at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Adams on Twitter at NaismithLiz. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Frank Isola, unable to join us today. Check out everything else on the Locked On Podcast Network. Chad Ford's NBA Big Board, Hollinger and Duncan, John Hollinger, Nate Duncan. Locked On Fantasy Basketball with Josh Lloyd. And Locked On NBA, the national program, five days a week. Plus, your team every single day here on the Locked On Podcast Network. Adam and I are with you twice a week on Tuesdays. Just two plugged-in dudes talking hoops and a little bit of life, and then we go ISO, a long-form interview, just like we just had with Josiah Johnson that comes your way every Thursday here on the Rejecting the Screed feed. So make sure you subscribe, rate, review, share with your friends. Adam, thanks, pal. You're the best.